The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Dela Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community Facebook group and my website, angeltarot.org. Okay, so we are here today to talk about a big topic. This is the Dr. Wayne Dyer origin story. He was known as the father of motivation. He wrote over 40 books. He even made a movie called The Shift. Uh, He was really the driving force behind Hay House with Louise Hay. He was their star performer. Everybody wanted to see Wayne Dyer, and maybe you did too. And I hope that we will have a great time going through the story together. So join me as we get started. It all begins on May 10th, 1940 in Detroit. Wayne Walter Dyer was the youngest of three boys and his father was an alcoholic and left the family, abandoned his mother, abandoned the children. She did not have the financial means to feed these three boys. She was really in a tough spot. So much to her dismay, she ends up having to find alternate arrangements. And Wayne Dyer and his brother David end up going to an orphanage and living in a series of foster homes. Now, several years later, their mother was able to reunite the family. And Wayne was very close with his mother until her death in her mid-90s she lived. She lived to be in her mid-90s. She passed away three years before Wayne Dyer, so he really didn't spend much time without her. No, that's a little bit of a, a mixed blessing there. So the family gets back together, and now he's living with his stepfather, and his stepfather was watching a show called Life is Worth Living on Tuesday nights. And this was with Bishop Fulton Sheen. Now, maybe you haven't heard of Bishop Sheen. I know I hadn't. He was a little before my time. But he was a big influence on young Wayne. You know, Wayne was only 12 years old when he started watching this show. And he said he would watch intently. He was even taking notes. 
Can you imagine a little boy, um, you know, watching a show about the power of your mind to create the kind of life that you want and taking notes? I think that's fantastic. I think it speaks to a calling that was in, in Wayne from a very young age. So Bishop Fulton Sheen was a bishop and later an archbishop of the Catholic Church, formerly the host of the Catholic Hour on nighttime radio for 20 years until 1950. So then 1952 to 1957, he had this show on primetime called Life is Worth Living. It won an Emmy Award for Most Outstanding Television Personality and was even on the cover of Time magazine. So if you're a little bit older than me, maybe you had the pleasure of seeing him on television. Although I did check out some YouTube videos, which was pretty fun to see, you know, the comparison of what kind of influence did Bishop Sheen have on Wayne Dyer? And, you know, he was talking about uh, Bishop Sheen had a pleasant speaking style, made a lot of jokes, and presented a positive view of life. And you could see that. It was really neat. Because when we look at all the talks that Wayne Dyer gave, of which there were many, um, and we're lucky to have so many of those recorded, you know, he was always making jokes and personal stories about his family. And, you know, it was never too heavy. It was always really fun to watch. So, Bishop Sheen was, I think, an early influence not only on the way that Wayne Dyer presented his talks, presented information to people, but also planted that seed that your mind can dramatically impact the quality of your life, change your thoughts, change your life. And there's a quote from Wayne here. Now, he had just finished his... Um, almost his final book called I Can See Clearly Now. And he had done the PBS special for that, which was about to, to air. And he says, I'm still thinking about Bishop Sheen. His title, Life is Worth Living, has turned out to be the theme of my life's work. That's pretty powerful. In fact, it could have been the title for all of my books. That early encounter with Tuesday Night TV inspired something in me that has been unfolding in my life ever since. You know, what a blessing to have influences like that in our life that it's like a turning point. When someone comes in and changes the way you think about things, and Wayne was that for me, and I will be forever grateful. Now, you know, we don't come here as blank slates. I don't believe that. You know, Wayne was the father of eight children, and he said, you know, every one of them comes in with their own personality. And, you know, the one that's kicking and screaming as a baby is the one that's screaming at you as a teenager. That, you know, we have these personalities, these these dharmas and these, you know, our, our spirit is bringing something forth that's more than just what we're collecting on this earth. So I kind of want to talk a little bit here about Wayne Dyer's character traits. You know, what was unique about him that positioned him to become this authority and this influential figure? He was really self-driven from a very young age. Um, when he was in the orphanage, he describes that as a very, you know, pivotal time. He doesn't describe it as, oh, woe is me, I had to go into an orphanage. In fact, Wayne says that his life purpose, like his soul contract, was that he wanted to teach self-reliance. And he imagines having this conversation with God. 
And God says, Wayne, you're about to go into a life on earth. What is it that you want to do there? And Wayne says, you know, I really want to teach self-reliance. And God says, well, then you better get your little ass into an orphanage, <laughs> right? He saw that as forming who he was. He saw that as, you know, fuel for becoming the man that he wanted to be, as an opportunity to learn this experience of being driven from within and seeing things differently. He said that, you know, little kids would come into the orphanage and they'd be scared and they'd be crying. And Wayne would be like, come on, what are you, what are you so sad about? This is great. There's no parents here. We're going to have so much fun. It's like, even from that young age, he knew how to turn lemons into lemonade. He could turn things around. Like he wanted to do that. He wanted to help people be more positive about any situation. He was a nonconformist. You know, he didn't feel the need to do what everybody else was doing, the way everybody else was doing it. I really relate to that. You know, when I was a kid, I I wasn't afraid to go off and do my own thing. I didn't really fall under peer pressure, you know, and, and if there's a lot of peer pressure going on, I just kind of walk away. So I think that's one of the reasons that I relate to Wayne is that that sense of doing things your own way without needing approval from others was really powerful for him. You know, he was an avid reader. He was really a scholar his whole life. And he was actually writing stories and essays from the time he was very young. So he started practice, practicing those skills. He had a passion for it. He wanted to help others. He was willing to go against the grain, put everything on the line, and go after his unique vision. That was such a theme of his life. You know, he took big chances and he went after the dream that only he could see. And he tried to tell us, you can do this too. Take the path less traveled. You know, follow the beat of your own drum. So... When he got to high school, he's in Denby High School, he had some new influences, and that was a couple people you might have heard about, is Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, two central figures of transcendentalism. And you really can't talk about Wayne Dyer without talking about transcendentalism. So both of these men, Thoreau and Emerson, were actually friends. They lived at the same time, in the same place, in New England, in the mid-1800s. Um, Emerson was older than Thoreau by about uh, 13, 14 years. And he was kind of a mentor to Thoreau. In fact, at one point, Thoreau was living in Emerson's house as a caretaker for his home. And Emerson was promoting the writing of Thoreau. So... Let's back up a little bit about what is transcendentalism. And it was this idealistic, philosophical, and social movement. Uh, talked about that the God is in everything, divinity um, is part of nature and humanity, and speaks to nonconformity and self-reliance being intrinsically motivated. And this was at a time when spiritual guidance was the exclusive domain of established religions. So they were not making a lot of people happy. They were really, <laughs> they were really going against the grain and, and they were willing to 
risk everything. Um, Henry David Thoreau is known for writing Walden and Civil Disobedience. And Wayne discovered those writings, actually after being a little disobedient himself, uh, he had gotten in a little trouble with 10th grade biology from refusing to do a leaf collection. You may have heard him tell that story. So he ends up outside the principal's office and there they have um, a book with the writings of many people and one of them is um, Civil Disobedience was at the end of that book. And, you know, he joked that if you're trying to get kids to conform to the rules, you probably shouldn't put that outside the principal's office. Um, you know, Thoreau uh, asserted that every person has a right and an obligation to follow their conscience, especially when unjust rules are forced upon them by government authority. And I think that really... Uh, <laughs> that really spoke to the inner rebel of that young Wayne who was already willing to do things differently. Now, a couple years later, he uh, started reading Emerson as well. Now, we talked a little bit about his life purpose as being self-reliance. Now, I'm going to admit something I'm not too proud of here, and that's I heard him say that so many times. And I didn't realize, I didn't know what he meant by that. When he talked about self-reliance, he didn't mean material independence. He didn't mean simply doing things on your own without needing help from others. Uh, he meant self-reliance the way Emerson spoke of it. So Emerson has a very famous essay from 1841, a hundred years before Wayne Dyer was born. A hundred years later, he influences Wayne Dyer. I think that's pretty cool. So he had written an essay on self-reliance, which talked about the importance of pursuing one's own thoughts and intuition, not adhering to public norms sensing a theme here. And this was all part of that transcendentalism of which Ralph Waldo Emerson was the founding member and Henry David Thoreau was another central figure of that. There were some tenets of transcendentalism, trust thyself, um, resist conformity and divine providence, which is about seeing the unfolding of God in everyone and in all of life. And that's really beautiful. So, this was Wayne in high school, and I feel like he's already getting these influences about God in everything. That God not being, you know, this white man on a pedestal with um, vengeance and hellfire, but, you know, a God that is this energy that is in all things, a grace in our lives. He talks about living in harmony with your spiritual essence. So there's some spiritual concepts here and living by ethics rather than rules. Yeah, sounds a lot like Wayne, doesn't it? So I believe until the end of his life, he had two pictures on, in his sacred writing space, one of Thoreau and one of Emerson. Now I know he added some other pictures along the way, but those two guys who happened to be friends, you know, in the, in the mid 1800s, were such an influence on Wayne for the rest of his life. 
you know, Wayne has said about Thoreau that this man is writing directly to my heart. I feel as if I've found a literary soulmate. One of his favorite quotes from Thoreau was, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. I love that quote. It's so inspiring. It's like, it's like, go for it. It's this, it's talking about this co-creative process that, you know, if you have the vision and you take a step forward that, you know, the powers of the universe are, are going to collaborate and collect to bring that to life, to manifest that which you connected to, that which you're in alignment with. It's so exciting. I mean, these are, these are the principles of the law of attraction. And I think maybe our spiritual understandings have kind of evolved over the years. Like so many of us speak in the same terms. And a lot of these terms I learned from Wayne Dyer. Um, There's things like self-reliance that we just talked about from Emerson. There's also synchronicity from Maslow. And you know, he talked about the power of intention. That was the understanding of, of that term, the way he taught it, came from Carlos Castaneda. You know, there was a number of things that it's like you kind of had to learn the terminology to know what he was talking about. So the next influence that I want to talk to you about is Abraham Maslow. So, okay. Let's back up a second in Wayne's life. We talked about him being in high school, and after high school, he goes off into the Navy for four years, and he goes off after spending some time with his Uncle Bill, who was a school teacher. Uncle Bill was another one. He had great humor. People really loved his lectures, and Wayne got onto that boat saying, when I come back, I'm going to work towards being a teacher. And in fact, he did some writing while he was out in the Navy. He comes back and he applies to Wayne State University in his hometown of Detroit, and he gets accepted. Now, his academic record was not stellar, and he was so grateful that they took a chance on him. He didn't take it for granted at all. He said he never missed a class. I'm sure he was really focused, taking notes and just absorbing everything. And um, he was a psychology major. When he was beginning his doctoral studies, he had something come across his desk that was a big influence. He was working as a high school guidance counselor at the time, and one of his students brought him a book that was a collection of writings. It was called The World of Psychology, Volume 2. It had 41 essays in it. He gets this on the day of his appointment with his doctoral advisor. He's drawn to this one particular essay from Abraham Maslow titled Self-Actualizing People. See where we're going here? And he's like, all right, I've got a couple hours to kill before my appointment. I'm just going to go ahead and sit down and read this. And he was completely blown away by what he read. He said, I see so many of my atypical personality traits and inclination in Maslow's description of self-actualizing people. 
I've always been independent of the good opinions of others, followed my own predilections, and been outside the box of my thinking for as long as I can remember. And he decides that this is the direction that he wants to take for his studies. Now, he'd, al he'd already written this out. He'd already done the paperwork. He'd already made a plan. He knew what he wanted to study for his doctorate. And he was just meeting with his advisor to kind of put that in, into place. And all of a sudden, he does a 180 and makes a new plan. So he goes to his meeting with his advisor, Dr. Mildred Peters, who he loved dearly. Apparently she was incredible, very supportive of him. And he says, Dr. Peters, this is what I want to study. And he brings the last paragraph from that Abraham Maslow essay. You know, he wants to study what is right about people instead of what is wrong about people. He doesn't want to study psychological illness. He wants to study about the potential of human beings. And he was passionate about that for the rest of his life. So he says, can we do this? And she says, yes, life-changing. She created an entirely new curriculum in the doctoral program to fulfill his request. And I think she got about a dozen other people to join in on that first year. So he, you know, he was the driving force behind this new course of study. And wow, what a difference it made. So Abraham Maslow is most well known for his hierarchy of needs, but he also used the term self-actualization. Now, interestingly, he didn't actually come up with this term. He got that from a German psychiatrist named Kurt Goldstein a few years earlier. And it was translated from German into self-actualizing. Although I read that it would be more accurately translated as self-realization, which is interesting because that, that takes a different spin on it. So here's some traits or characteristics of self-actualizing people. Wayne talked a lot about this, so if you're familiar with his lectures, you may have heard some of this, but self-actualizing people, it's like they've reached their potential. They must be who they can be. They're highly functioning. You know, they don't worry about what other people think. They're independent of the good opinions of other people. They have a lot of trust in themselves. They're true to what feels right to them. You know, listen to their own heart and making their own decisions. Free from reliance on external authority. Wow, this really feeds back into transcendentalism. Peak experiences, which it's interesting because in psychological terms, they talk about peak experiences as you know, great bliss, amazing, like the sense of lightness, a sense of connection to everything. And it sounds a lot like a spiritual awakening to me. So Wayne's studying psychology, but I feel like he's getting these influences that are making him think in more spiritual terms than psychologists normally do. Um, there's a sense of mission or purpose, a willingness to be vulnerable and take risks. They really want to be themselves, be fully human, fully fulfilled, and completely alive. This is what Wayne Dyer wanted to teach us how to be. So Maslow talked about self-actualizing people as extremely rare, as this pinnacle of, of potential that can only be reached 
when you've satisfied everything else in the hierarchy of needs, right? Safety, physical well-being, nutrition, all of these things, and then you can focus on the spiritual. But where Wayne Dyer differed with Maslow is he believed this was available to everyone, not just a select few. That changed everything because he wanted to get that message out to us. So Maslow was teaching this to the academic community as um, a theory that can only be in practice for a select few. And Wayne goes, no, 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 no. If one person can do it, then anybody can do it. That drove the direction of his life. If you look at every book and every talk he ever gave, it's like he was so clear on what he wanted to teach us. And he was just playing around with different ways of getting that message across. Change your thoughts, change your life. You'll see it when you believe it, that you can alter your history the way that you see yourself, your personal experiences, you're not a victim to that. You can rewrite the story that you tell yourself by getting rid of self-limiting beliefs. And when you when you get rid of the self-limiting beliefs, the 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 desire for conformity and safety, then you can transcend anything. A lot of that came from what he learned from Maslow, and he studied that in his doctoral program. Now, interestingly, now we already talked about they differed a little bit, but Maslow wasn't too happy with what people did with his writing. Um, he wasn't too happy with how it was received, and he said that he received a fair number of letters from people saying they were self-actualized. And Maslow said he must have left something out because <laughs> he really didn't think that hardly anybody would really become self-actualized. It was almost something to work up to. It was almost like, let's look at the behaviors and the characteristics of a very rare few people that can get to this. And let's try to be more like that. But very few of us really would. Dr. Dyer said, one of my greatest teachers was Abraham Maslow, who wrote about highly functioning people, what he called actualizers. One of his greatest teachers. Abraham Maslow became a towering figure in my life. He was the inspiration for me to look at psychology from a 180 degree turnabout position. Rather than studying what was weak and firm or limited in clients and make assessment based on overcoming ailments, I began to look for the highest qualities of self-actualization and encouraging clients and ultimately readers and listeners, that's you folks, to seek their own innate greatness and aspire to these pinnacles. I reasoned that if some among us could be self-actualized, then so could I and anyone else who understood that it was possible. He wanted us to believe what was possible. He used his life as an example of what we could do. It wasn't just him. This became a major focus of my professional life and the compass I set for myself to live the principles that Maslow delineated in his writing. So Abraham Maslow died of a heart attack 
on the day that Wayne Dyer was walking across the stage to receive his doctorate degree. And he said he felt like Maslow was handing him the baton, saying, I taught these principles to the academic community. Now you teach it to the world. That's a beautiful sentiment. Abraham Maslow, folks, big influence. You know, there were so many influences. There's just a couple more that I want to tell you about. And one is Carl Jung. So something a lot of people don't know is that Wayne Dyer actually trained as a Jungian analyst. So he was well familiar with the teaching and the concepts and the practices of Carl Jung, who was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. He was the founder of analytical psychology. And in his lifetime, he was a little bit younger than Freud, but collaborated with Sigmund Freud for a time. Freud thought that Jung was going to be the heir he was looking for to take forward his new science of psychoanalysis, but eventually they differed on a few points. Jung de-emphasized the importance of sexual development and focused on the collective unconscious, the part of the unconscious that contains memories and ideas that Jung believed were inherited from our ancestors. Ooh, that sounds pretty mystical to me. Now, he was very involved in talking about um, paranormal. So, again, Wayne started out purely in psychology, but not the normal route of psychology. You know, not the what's wrong with you and how can I fix it and let's help you work through your, tr your traumas that we can't really change anything. He was on the behavioral psychology which was about the potential of human beings. That was a real passion for him. And he was eventually going to transition into more spirituality. So when I'm looking at these influences, I'm looking for seeds of that. I'm looking for, you know, where did that come from? Because it wasn't until the 1990s that Dr. Wayne Dyer's writing took a turn from psychology to spirituality, where he started to talk about God and spiritual solutions to your problems. Now, I think that may have largely been a shift in semantics, because I think he had some spiritual beliefs and some background in mysticism before he started using those terms. But it it worked its way into his writing in the 90s. And some of that may have come from Carl Jung. He's known for doing uh, dream analysis, uh, but he also talked about collective unconscious and that, you know, we're, we're connected to a collective stream of consciousness and that we're connected to our ancestors. Now, that's something that I personally very much believe. Um, I experience the oneness of that energy and it's interesting to think about psychologists from the, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, looking into these concepts, but kind of from a different angle. So Carl Jung coined the term synchronicity, meaningful coincidences that are not an accident. I think he was trying to explain our connection to events that seem to be coincidences. 
because there's almost a consistency to it. There's almost a formula to bringing these events into your life and having more of them. And I think Jung was really curious about, you know, what is the nature of the universe? How do things come to be? What is our role in all of this? And this was his attempt to answer those questions. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So synchronicity talks about two or more events where something other than probability of chance is involved. He uses a lot of technical terms that I don't, I don't really want to, <laughs> I don't want to bore you with that today. I'm trying to get these concepts across. So I hope this is helpful. So he believed in this connection to all that is this wholeness, this oneness. And he had these elements of spiritual awakening. And this term synchronicity, it's so beautiful. It's one of my favorite words. It's one that Wayne Dyer used a lot that, you know, the idea that there are no accidents, that we live in a perfect universe. Wayne used to say everything that happened in your life needed to happen. And the proof is that it did you know, brought you to who you are today. The book that he wrote, I Can See Clearly Now, it was really about connecting all the dots of his life. We talk about that book like it's a memoir of his life, and it's excellent if you haven't read it. But really what he was trying to do is he was trying to show that, you know, that idea that there's something bigger moving the pieces around, that there were these things that happened at just the right time with just the right people, that were influences that led to um, the whole dharma of his life, the whole mission that he felt like he came here with, that it wasn't an accident that he became who we knew. And I believe that was co-creative. I believe that he had the personality for it. I believe that, you know, he had the skills for it. And he did what he needed to do to get these ideas out to us. Out to us. And thank God that he did because he's had such an influence on millions and millions of people and more people to come. He created an entire library of books and videos and lectures and his movie. And there's just so many things that we still have to work with that, that future generations can still learn from. Synchronicity is this beautiful idea that when you're really aligned with spirit, when you're aligned with purpose, that what you are in alignment with will come into your material world. It's this whole law of attraction again. It's this idea that if you're living on purpose, then you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Because if you're listening, you know when to act and the right things will come up. It's not about being inactive. It's about trusting in the co-creative process. So there you go, folks. Synchronicity. Now, 
Many of you may know Wayne Dyer from his book, Your Erroneous Sounds. And he had written some um, academic papers and co-wrote a couple of textbooks when he was a professor at St. John's University of New York. But Euronius Zones was the first book that he wrote for the public. This was something he really wanted to do. He was frustrated with the restrictions and the limitations and the format of writing for academic papers. I mean, you can imagine. It's, it's dry to read. It's probably not a lot of fun to write either. He wanted to write in a more conversational style. He wanted to reach more people. And he had such a gift for reading these really complicated, you know, textbooks or, you know, books of ancient wisdom that have, have been passed down for thousands of years. You name it, he could take something that most of us wouldn't know what to do with and he could translate it for us. He could make sense of that for us. He could put it into a form that was useful for our lives. That was his mission and and that was his gift. So he starts writing for the rest of us, and that's really what he's been wanting to do all along. Now, before we talk about the book, there's a couple of influences that I want to speak of, and one is Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis, if you're not familiar, wrote about rational emotive therapy. He was an author, and he conducted workshops in New York, and when Wayne was still um, at Wayne State University, no coincidence in the name, he got a book from a friend of his um, that was called A Guide to Rational Living. His friend John gave him this book. And he said, as I read this small book, it speaks to me like nothing else has in my training, coursework, and personal reading in terms of how to assist clients in attaining their highest self. He said it provided specifics on how to teach attainment of self-actualization. Hello! So he learned these concepts from Maslow, and now he's got someone who's offering up suggestions on how you can put this into practical application in counseling patients to help them work through their limiting beliefs. The book talks about that we have unrealistic and irrational beliefs causing most of our emotional problems and that the job of a therapist is to change those beliefs, challenge self-defeating thinking, and actively promote rational self-talk. Boy, does that sound like Wayne. No wonder he lit up when he read this book. It's almost like it was bringing everything together for him. It gave him tools to work with. And so he starts applying these tools in his own private therapy practice. And he's having great results. People are really responding to this. He's being a little more confrontational with his clients than a therapist normally would. But he's loving it. He's loving it because he's getting people to challenge like their old thinking patterns and beliefs that aren't serving them. He says, this little book is the most powerfully influential book I have looked into, A Guide to Rational Living by Albert Ellis. You know, this all comes back to that concept of change your thoughts, change your life, you know, which is something that Dr. Dyer talked a lot about. It's the name of the podcast you're listening to now. It had such an influence on me. If you change the way you think about things, then your life is going to change. 
And everything he's been studying has kind of been leading him up to this. So now he finds this book and this, you know, system by Albert Ellis. And um, he's got, he. it's like it puts the pieces together. And he starts making notes about a book that he wants to write. And I think that those notes were um, at the ready when the, t- the timing came for him to write your erroneous zones. So let's talk about Wayne's father for a little bit again. So this is a heavy topic. Um, His dad, who abandoned the family and never to be seen again. And Wayne would try to ask his mother, you know, oh, I want to know about my father. What's my father like? And she didn't want to talk about him. And the only thing she would say is that he was an a-hole. And she said, Wayne said she never used language like that, only for him. And his brothers, his two older brothers, just didn't seem to have any interest in it. Was like, why do you want to bother with that? Who cares about our father? He's a jerk. Like, just forget about it. But he had this burning desire to know who his father was, um, maybe try to understand why he left. And he never really knew what happened. Well, through a series of incredible coincidences, a.k.a. synchronicities, he discovers that his father had died 10 years prior and that he's buried in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is right near where Wayne was at the time for work. He was traveling. And I'm not going to go through all those synchronicities. We could do a whole podcast just on that. But you can read about it or watch the movie uh, My Greatest Teacher from Hay House. And that is a great story about um, the synchronicities of finding his father's grave. And he says he carried so much rage for his father. And I think we can understand that. I don't think we would fault him for that at all. This man who abandoned the family. He said he had so much, not just anger, but rage in his heart for his father that he had this recurring dream almost nightly where he would like find his dad in a bar and like they'd scream at each other and they'd start fist fighting, you know, and he'd wake up in a sweat and just all upset. And so he'd been carrying this with him with all this amazing work that he'd been doing. He was still carrying this rage for his father and in some way, you know, must have been holding him back. He wasn't quite free to move forward. So he gets to his father's grave. He's so mad. He says he goes there to piss on his father's grave. But he doesn't. He probably stands there and yells at him, heads back to his car. And before he leaves, he has this feeling, turn around, go back to the grave. He goes back to the grave and he starts sobbing. It's like this grace came over him. And he said, from now on, I send you love. He forgave him. He set himself free. He wasn't going to harbor this hostility anymore. And that was a pivotal point in the life of Wayne Dyer. That turned everything around. His relationships changed, his work changed, his health improved, his diet changed. And when he left 
Mississippi, he rented a motel room and wrote by hand Euronius Zones in 14 days. He had been wanting for so long to write a book to help people. Not an academic journal, but something for the rest of us. And he didn't know how that was going to come about. I think he wrestled with that a lot in his head. And then all of a sudden, after he forgave his father, it just poured out of him in two weeks. And there it was. Beautiful. Amazing. So at this time, he was a professor at St. John's University. He was doing really well. He was on his way to getting tenure. Now, very coveted position, great security. Wayne's the father of eight children, right? He, he's got a family to support. He Taking chances is not smart at this point in his life. But he, did, he does exactly that because he gets the book published. And then a few months later, it's not selling very well. And he keeps calling the publisher like, hey, what's going on with my book? You know, how's it selling? He says, I think they're getting really annoyed with me. But, you know, he's so passionate about this. It was a real passion project for him. And, and he believes in it. And he wants to get the message out there. This, this is it. This is the book he wants to get to get out to everybody. And he's asking about what is your marketing plan and determines they didn't really have one. They were going to let that book die on the vine, and Wayne wasn't going to let that happen. So he ends up leaving his position as a professor, buys up the rest of the books, puts them in the trunk of his car, and drives around the country. He legged it. He he went out there on his own. He risked everything. He said he would show up at any radio station that would have him. He was tireless. He went to every bookstore asking them to carry his book. And before the publishers knew what was happening, his book was reaching the bestseller list. It's amazing. You know, talk about a self-made man. No wonder he had such a great story to tell. So his book starts starts selling very well. He's been making these radio appearances. He's on the bestseller list. He starts making TV appearances. And he ends up selling um, over 100 million copies to date. That's mind-boggling. It was such a popular book. And it's one that to this day, so that was published in 1976, and to this day, that's still a book that he's known for. Now, everybody makes the joke about your erogenous zones and the book being misplaced as a, you know, an erotic novel. It was in the wrong place in a lot of the bookstores. And, you know, people would like cover it in brown paper, right? Like, like they think they're looking at something naughty, but it was really a book about psychology. So... So where does he go from there? Well, now he's an author, you know? Now he can do what he's been working up to doing for so long, what has been in his heart to do. And all of these things that he studied from from Maslow and Jung and Albert Ellis and Thoreau and Emerson and so many others, most of whom will probably even never know what the influences were. 
but he has this this lifetime of experience now that he's working with and he keeps writing more books right he wrote over 40 books in his lifetime and he you know when he was a professor he he had people coming into his lectures all the time like that weren't even students people would hear about him and they would want to come listen because he was so engaging and he was so funny and part of the influence of that was when he was at Wayne State University he felt like a lot of his professors were wasting an opportunity they seemed to have such apathy for what they were doing they weren't showing a passion for what they were teaching and he was like you know they have all these students as a captive audience like what are you doing you're missing an opportunity and he told himself you know when he became a teacher it was going to be different and all those years of teaching then developed his speaking skills, developed his style, and he carried that onto TV where he did so many PBS specials. He raised millions and millions of dollars for public television. And that's actually where I discovered Wayne. I discovered Wayne watching PBS with my dad when I was a teenager, and something just drew me in. Something drew me in in a way that I can't even explain, but he opened a door in my mind to what was possible, and I started reading his books. The first book I read was You'll See It When You Believe It, and I just I highlighted that book like crazy, and I've been hooked ever since. Oh, that was quite some time ago now. Now, we talked a little bit about his shift into spirituality. So by the time I discovered him, he was already talking about God. He was already talking about spiritual solutions and spiritual wisdom. And, you know, the verbiage had changed. The terminology had changed. The focus had shifted a little bit. And he had a lot of influences for that. Um, one that I want to talk about is Ram Dass, the beloved Ram Dass, who was a Harvard professor that was part of the, you know, the studies done with LSD and... Um, you know, the spiritual awakening of the 60s. And, and he went to India in search of a guru and followed Maharaji. And when he eventually came back, he was writing books and doing lectures and hugely influential, uh, a huge influence on, on so many in the spiritual community. Um, I wasn't around in the 60s, but I learned about him through Wayne actually. I'd like to say I knew about him before because he's really fantastic. Uh, but I learned about him through Wayne. Dr. Dyer said that Ramdas was and is the finest speaker I have ever heard, period. He was my role model on stage. Did you know that? Always gentle and kind, always speaking without notes from his heart, sharing his inspiring stories and always with great humor. I tell you this from my own heart. I could listen to his lectures for hours and always felt saddened when they would end. He was the voice for applied spirituality. His life was the model. He wrote that in a letter called Be Here for Him Now. Ram Dass suffered a massive stroke in the 90s and left him... Um, it wasn't that he couldn't speak. It was that he would have thoughts and it didn't connect into words. So he was very slow to speak, but he continued speaking and writing until he passed away this last December, December 2019. Love you, Ram Dass. So 
they ended up being friends, and Wayne Dyer helped him to settle on Maui, where he lived for the rest of his days. And Wayne Dyer lived on Maui at that time as well. Loved it there. Such a healing place. And, you know, Ramdas was a mentor to him. He was an inspiration to him, but they ended up becoming friends which is so beautiful. If you're in the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community on Facebook, I shared a picture recently of Wayne Dyer and Ram Dass. And it's just one of my favorite pictures just to see them together because they both hold such a place in my heart. Some of his other spiritual influences were Carlos Castaneda on his book, The Power of Intention, uh, Wayne's book, The Power of Intention, Castaneda brought forth this definition of intention as as something that gets a hold of you and that carries you forward as opposed to this dogged determination to get things done. Uh, Wayne was a self-proclaimed student of A Course in Miracles, something I have studied as well. He was friends, of course, with Louise Hay, um, the founder of Hay House, his publishing company, he loved Lao Tzu, who was the author of the Tao Te Ching, but was thousands of years old. He had a picture of Lao Tzu in his writing space as well, um, particularly when he was studying the Tao. Neville on the I Am Discourses, I Am That I Am, The Name of God, and St. Francis of Assisi. Now, St. Francis is someone that Wayne felt a deep affinity for. It went beyond that. It was something he didn't really want to talk too much about. But at one point, he had a past life regression that a very, very deep, long past life progression at the end of which he saw himself as St. Francis of Assisi. Now he says, I don't really know if I was St. Francis. How can we know? But he says, I really believe I was there. And I think he felt the energy of St. Francis. He felt that influence within him. He felt a connection and a oneness with St. Francis. There is a video that you can get called Experiencing the Miraculous. And it's a spiritual journey to Assisi, Lourdes, and Medjugorje. He, he took a group of people around to these uh, sacred sites and he gave some lectures while he was there. So this is a recording of those lectures. The recording quality isn't the best, but there's so much heart in this and you get a sense of the energy that they were feeling while they were there. So the first talk he gives is in Assisi and that's where in it, they get into this church that is um, so old. I don't remember how old but St. Francis was there. You know, that church is older than, than it was from before the time of St. Francis. And Wayne Dyer was just so honored to be there and speaking in that space. It was another series of synchronicities that made that possible. And, and during that talk, at one point, he says, can you feel him? He's here. He felt the energy of St. Francis and he starts crying in front of everybody. I've never seen Wayne Dyer cry before. That was really powerful. He felt it so strongly. So his favorite prayer from St. Francis, which he had displayed in his home and read to us often, is this. 
Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal light. St. Francis of Assisi was a founder of the Franciscan Order of Monks, He lived from 1182 to 1226. Wow, that's a long time ago. And in Wayne's book, Wisdom of the Ages, he has this prayer included. And he says, This simple prayer is one of the most famous and enduring of all prayers in recorded history. It expresses the deep yearning within all human beings to be the spiritual being who inhabits our physical form. In the words of this prayer, St. Francis describes the essential content of our highest self. I love to silently recite this prayer and also at times to say it out loud. I think that's a perfect place to end with how much St. Francis was in Wayne Dyer's heart. We've covered so much today. I hope that you've learned something new or maybe been inspired to look into someone you hadn't thought about in a while, you know, read their books again or their essays or, or learn a little bit more who they were, or maybe just inspire you to follow your path and to think about and look at the influences that you've had and the influences that are still happening in your life to believe in synchronicities, believe that self-actualization is possible, that you can reach your potential, that you can change your life by changing the way you think. Wayne Dyer has created an entire body of work that we can all gain so much from. Every time I read a book or listen to a lecture, I get something new out of it. It brings me back onto my path. It brings me back into alignment with Source. It inspires me. It calms my mind. It calms my body. It's healing to me. I lost my father a year ago, almost exactly. And as you know, I've been a fan of Wayne Dyer for over 20 years. And his talks have always been a comfort to me. And even in the face of losing my wonderful father, listening to Wayne Dyer brought me peace. And sometimes I feel like his message was my dad's message. My dad had this oneness, this understanding, this peace, this faith. It wasn't something that he really put into words. He was the same age as Wayne Dyer. And sometimes when I listen to Wayne, I think that this is what my dad wanted to tell me. And Wayne's putting it into words. 
Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking this incredible journey through the life of Dr. Wayne Dyer, his origin story. How did he become the man that we know? What were some of his major influences? Some of those turning points in his life. Love to you all. Love to each other. I will see you next time. Namaste. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, and wherever you get your podcasts.